0: Holy Father, we know that the wages of sin is death, that the life is in the blood, and so without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness for sin. Thank you that the rivers of blood that went through the pages of recorded history in our Bible all pointed to the ultimate Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. Lord Jesus, we thank you that as a sinless substitute, you are willing to lay down your life you demonstrated you were sinless in Lord when you were raised from the dead. And thank you that your blood secures us. It gives us a guarantee that we have a place in heaven when we come by faith in you. And thank you, too, for the power of the cross, not just to forgive us, but also to cleanse us from all unrighteousness that we might walk in the power of the Spirit. Teach us how to rely upon the Spirit, Lord. Teach us how to be filled with Him moment by moment to walk with Him. Thank You, our Father, that when You saved us, You did it with a view towards making us more and more like Your Son, and that You promised that somehow in Your providence You work all things together for good, that we might be conformed to the image of Christ. So whatever our people may be going through today, some in the midst of deep heartache, having lost a loved one, others ridden with serious physical issues, others dealing with different emotional trauma. Thank you that you are faithful, that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. Thank you that we still share in this country a degree of freedom to worship and to gather that many of your saints across the world do not know some who are imprisoned and jailed and even put to death because they name the name of Jesus we submit our minds to you this morning thank you for your word you said Lord Jesus sanctify them in the truth your word is truth so we bless you for the power of the pure unadulterated milk of your word that by it we can grow in respect to salvation So we come to study it, but not simply in our own power. We thank you for our teacher, the Spirit, the anointing. Your Word says that you've given to every child of God who's been made that by faith in Jesus. I pray that he would teach us today, that he would help us to see and understand, and though a familiar text, I pray that he would bring home new truth and new application to each one. Help me, Spirit of God, fill me and anoint me and use me that I might lift up the Lord Jesus to whom you point all men, and I ask it in your name, amen. Take the word of God, would you, this morning, Ephesians chapter 5, Ephesians 5. If you are joining us for the first time, we've been working our way through the revelation, but I've been led of the Lord to hit the pause button today to speak on the subject of marriage. I read about a couple who was celebrating their diamond anniversary, their 60th anniversary. They were late in their 70s. Ted, the husband, had uh, lost much of his hearing over the years, but they loved each other, got along together so well, and, and all the kids came, the grandkids came, the great-grandkids came. They had a marvelous day celebrating throughout the day, and as the evening hours came, And everyone left. They walked out on the porch to watch another sunset and Ted pulled his tie loose and not saying much, just enjoying the silence, Bessie said to him, you know, Ted, I'm real proud of you. Well, what's that, honey? Ted, I'm real proud of you and kind of quiet and silent and a little smile out of the crack of his mouth. And he said, well, Bessie, I'm real tired of you too. (laughs) It's sad to say, but that's where a lot of our marriages end up. We're living together, but we just get tired. And we end up going our own separate ways sometimes, thinking the grass is greener somewhere else. And of course, the devil knows that if he can hurt us at home, he can hurt us everywhere. In the church, at work, in society, in government, and it will ultimately destroy a nation. And that's why I believe Satan is... Aiming at his most heavy artillery and attacks in the day that we live and in the family. And the attacks in the family, even in the last 12 months, have gotten more severe than they were a year ago at this time. But here in Ephesians 5, God gives us a picture, a blueprint, a schematic on how to have a healthy marriage. God wants your marriage to be strong, and He doesn't want you just to live together. He wants your marriage to be a blessing, and he wants it to represent the Lord Jesus. So you can see this morning's topic is reviving a tired Christian marriage. I say Christian marriage because to have a Christian marriage, you need two people who've been born from above. Now, sometimes there's just one who's a believer, and they can carry it. But I'll tell you, in the day that we live in, if both husband and wife are not born again, it is very difficult to sustain a marriage. I mean, how did we go from one in a 100 marriages in 1919 ending in divorce to approximately 50 out of 100? If you lived 100 years ago, you could not graduate from an American high school without reading. The New Testament is literature. <clears throat> it was a mandatory course. Who would ever imagine today that that would be a mandatory course? But we live in a day where God's Word is repudiated, it's disdained, it's mocked, it's made fun of. And the salt and the light that the church once expressed across the nation is diminishing more and more. But if you have two people, husband and wife, who are both Spirit-filled, God can use that couple in a mighty way. And if you're not sure what it means to be filled with the Spirit, go to the discovery class. That's one of the topics we cover, and how to walk consistently in the Spirit. It meets both hours, and you can begin any week that you wish. Now, let me just say parenthetically, you may be here, and you are single again, and you never want to be married again. That's just fine, and maybe that's the way it should be. But this message is for you. You're single, and you are here today, and you hope someday to be married. Well, you need to know what your role is and what kind of person you need to be looking for. You may be here today and you know God's called you to be single your whole life. Well, He's also called you to teach the whole counsel of Scripture. And so this sermon is for you, whatever status of life you're in. If you are a born-again, blood-bought child of God, you are called to teach the whole counsel of Scripture. Now if you look at marriage simply as a contract, you're going to fail. Because if you think marriage is a contract, you're always gonna be looking for loopholes. You're always going to be finding what your spouse is doing wrong. You'll find the fine print somewhere. But marriage is not a contract. It's described in the Bible as a covenant. Malachi the prophet, when he reminds those men who had been divorcing their wives, he said, the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. When two people get married, they make a covenant, they make a vow before God Almighty, and ultimately it is God to whom they are to please, which is why Solomon warns, when you make a vow to God, do not delay to fulfill it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It is better not to make a vow than to make one and not to fulfill it. And so what I'm going to say this morning, I understand, flies more and more in the face of the modern culture. Many of the things I'm going to tell you this morning are virtually the exact opposite of what the culture is teaching. And if I say something to you that is not found in this book, then you can come up with me and you can, we can have a little discussion after church. But if what I say to you is from this book, don't come up to me and, and try to debate with me. What we're looking at this morning is God Almighty who designed marriage, who thought it up, and His plan on how to be successful. Ephesians 5, I hope you have found it by now. I want to begin reading in verse 21. And be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ And the church, nevertheless, let each individual among you also love his own wife, even as himself, and let the wife see to it that she respect her husband. Now, as a pastor, I've done tons of weddings over the last 40 years, and I've never been to one that wasn't a happy, enriching day. Weddings are always happy. It's the living together that is the challenge. Now, why is that? Well, some marriages need a total overhaul because they are living according to the world's blueprint. You're not living by what God has designed for your marriage, sometimes out of ignorance. Sometimes we've listened more to the culture and spent more time studying the culture than we've studied the Word of God, and so we have what the world gives. But God gives us a pattern here from the owner's manual. I have a friend who's a car dealer, and he told me, the least read book in all America is the owner's manual in the automobile. And I suppose that is true when it comes to marriage in our day. People no longer even know what it says. And when you raise what it does say, they will often kick against you. Now, you want to jot down uh, first the first major point, and it concerns the faithful submission and respect of the wife. A little bit different than on your outline, the faithful submission and respect of the wife. Now, if you read through this whole section of Scripture, you will see that he first divides it amongst the wives, and then he addresses the husbands. And so it begins with God's plan for the wife, then he speaks about God's plan for the husband, And then he brings both husband and wife together in verse 33. So that's kind of the flow of the text. So the faithful submission and respect of the wife. And so in verses 22 through 24, Paul unfolds how it is that a woman is to love her husband. You know, very often you will hear people naively say, well, the role of the husband is to love his wife, the role of the wife is to submit to her husband. One's role is love, the other is submit. Actually, The Bible is clear, both are called to love one another. Paul, in his letter to Titus, instructing older women in the church, they are told to encourage the younger women to love their husbands. Though it is true, certainly in Ephesians chapter 5, that the principal way a wife loves her husband is by the way she submits and respects him. And if there's one truth, I suppose, in our text that emphasizes the man's role by which he loves his wife, it is by sacrificially loving her. Now, he first admonishes wives what they are to do. Then he's going to illustrate how they are to do it. And then he's going to conclude why they are to do it. So first, let's think about the instruction to the wife. It's very pointed, the instruction of the wife in verse 22, wives, be subject to your own husband's. As to the Lord. Now, if you read the entire section of Scripture, it becomes plain that Paul's discussion on marriage and family is largely weighted on the man rather than the woman. Most of the discussion, all the way into chapter 6, deals with the role of the father, deals with the role of the husband. And unfortunately, a lot of men don't really understand what their role is, and when they hear a sermon like this, they go home and they'll say, you heard what that pastor said. He said, you're supposed to submit to me. And of course, the Christian feminists in our day, and there are many now that have entered into the evangelical realm, they are quick to point out that the words subject are not found in the original text. Do you notice here in the New American Standard, be subject is italicized. Unlike in modern English, where we put something in italics for emphasis, since the Bishop's Bible, italics were in the English text to uh, put words that were not in the original Greek New Testament. So the words be subject are not in the original. And so sometimes in our English Bible, words are added because they're implied in the Greek New Testament, or they are added to express proper English grammar. In this case, it's implied in the text. Look at verse 21, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. And so the verb subject under the rules of Greek grammar is being shared in the verse that follows in verse 22. But if you didn't know any Greek grammar, and though even in the English Bible that's the natural reading, you could put out in the margin there Colossians 3.18. Because in that particular text, there is no verb sharing, and he just says, wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Or if you prefer, you could look at Titus chapter 2, where wives are to have the testimony of such that they are being subject to their husbands, why? That the word of God may not be dishonored. So there's no mystery that part of God's will for a wife is to be subject to her husband's. And the word subject here in Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3 and Titus are the same verb, hupotasso. And it literally means to fall in line. And it is a Greek verb that speaks of voluntary submission. It's the same word that the Apostle Paul tells the Corinthians to uses when he tells them to be subject to the elders in the church. It's the same verb that the apostle Peter uses of all believers, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution. And so this is something that you are to do, I am to do, all believers are to do. In some sense, we are all called to be subject. Wives, be subject to your own husband's As to the Lord. And so this is a voluntary subjection. It is not coerced, it is chosen. And that may seem obvious, but understand it's revolutionary in the first century at a time in human history where a woman had virtually no status and no rights at all. And so Paul is appealing to her as a free moral agent. Now, notice the word translated husband here in verse 22, it's the particular Greek word andresen that is usually translated as man or husband, depending on the context. It is never used ever of the female gender in Scripture. And so, when we studied deacons, and they were to select seven deacons in Acts 6, he uses this word, because it is a reflection of the male gender. So it's an honorable title here of the husband. The wife is commanded to be subject to her man, so to speak, to her husband, and it's further qualified, notice with the words, as to the Lord. He's lifting up her submission to a higher, more heavenly plane. And think about it, what woman in all the world would not want to submit herself to the Lord Jesus Christ. You know what I find so interesting? Never once, not once, anywhere recorded, anywhere in the New Testament, does a woman speak negatively of the Lord Jesus Christ. All the chatter he had, all the uh, rebellion he had, always came from men. I think women saw him as manly, as honorable, as thoughtful, and as kind And so Paul is saying, submit to your husband as to the Lord. He's going to go on to say that children are to submit or obey to their parents in the Lord. He's going to say that slaves are to be submissive to their masters as to Christ. So behind the husband, behind the parent, behind the master is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so ladies, when you submit to your husband, you are ultimately submitting to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, submission is necessary because we do not live in a sinless world. We live in a sinful world. But even if the world was sinless, it is still necessary, and I'll show you why in just a moment. But think about the society that we live in. We're called, for instance, to submit to kings, to presidents, to all who are in authority over us. Who would want to live in a culture? where everyone is a rebel, where everyone kicks against the governing authority, it would be absolute chaos. Think about the church. God has called men and women to submit to ecclesiastical authority. Obey your leaders, he will say, and submit to them. Why? For they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. And so where, do, where does a young man, a young lady, learn to Submit. Where does she learn to respect the teacher in school, the police officer, the pastor, the government official? They are supposed to learn in the smallest microcosm of life. And the more the family breaks down and falls apart, the more difficult it is to rule, to lead, to teach. You talk to any government school teacher, it's a disaster. They tell me they spend more of their day disciplining children than they do teaching. Why? Because the family is falling apart. And a country, a nation cannot enjoy freedom when its people do not submit. And the more aggressive and hateful and violent a culture becomes, the more oppressive the government must become. And we are losing our freedoms as a nation right before our own eyes. And so people find freedom in submitting. The Lord Jesus gave us this principle in John 17. Whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. And so wives are to submit to their men. To their husbands. Now, I know that there are several hundred people in our four campuses today who have met Christ in the last two years, and you're hearing this for the first time, but the rest of us need to be really crisp on these principles, because I'm telling you, even in the last 12 to 24 months, these principles are more and more being attacked. And if you cannot instill them into your children and into your grandchildren, and they go off to the university, and there's an anti-God, anti-Bible, anti-Christian culture, and they don't know why they believe what they believe, they even sometimes as born-again people can become subject to the culture around them and not experience the blessings, and so their next generation usually are lost. That's often what happens, first generation solid Christian people. But if they don't instill those principles to the next generation, they may give their kids enough truth to bring them into the kingdom, but then their kids are typically lost and rebellious. And so I want us to pay close attention, and there are two critical questions that we need to ask and answer when we think of submission. The first question is, does submission imply inferiority or inequality? The message of the Christian feminists in our day is, yes, it does. The message of the Word of God is, no, it does not. And so we live in a day of gender blurring. We live in a day where these roles are put down and attacked. And one of the verses that the Christian feminist uses is Galatians 3.28, and they'll quote it. They'll say, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And there's been so much ink spilt over this one verse, for the most part, out of its context in the day that we live in. But if you read the whole chapter, his point is is that men and women, slave and free, Jew and Gentile alike, share the same salvation blessings, that when we come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, God is not a respecter of persons, God sees us as equal in the salvation blessings that we share. But God is not saying that there are no roles amongst men and women, that is an inference It is reading into the passage, it is eisegesis, and it's not exegeting the passage out of its original context. And so what the Bible affirms is that men and women are equal, but they are different in function. Now, there are two critical terms you need to understand. One is egalitarianism, and the other is complementarianism egalitarianism, complementarianism. It's kind of like the word anthropology. The world stole it from the realm of theology. Anthropology was originally used of the study of man as described in the Bible. Now it has a much broader meaning, and so do these two terms. But biblically, these are important terms. Egalitarianism as used by the Christian feminists in our day, says that men and women are equal in their status before God. That's true. But they can also be equal in their function before God. So sometimes they deny male headship in the home or male headship in the church, one or both. That's dangerous. That's destructive. That's damaging to the family and to the local church. Someone called in the Bible line and they asked me just last week, if I had a woman pastor leading in my church, would I go there? I said, absolutely not. I would not want that woman pastor to feminize my children, not to mention she is in disobedience. She can say that she is called of God, but she is not, because God's will never contradicts His word. And I said, that would be a destructive model for your family. And it is not by accident that in churches where there is women pastors, there's a higher degree of homosexuality, effeminate boys, transgenderism, and that is always the first thing to go on the slippery slope of denying the truth of God's Word. Because the biblical principle is is that when a woman steps out of the God-given role that the Lord has given her, that she actually opens herself up to deception. So the Bible does not teach egalitarianism, that men and women are equal in status and in function. The Bible teaches complementarianism that God has made men and women equal in their status before him, but different in their function that he has ordained for them to carry out. And it goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. In Genesis 1, and God created man in his own image. And the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So while both are created in his image, they are not created identically. Do you think it is an accident that the pastor of one of the largest churches in the city of Atlanta now wants to discount the veracity of the Old Testament Scripture? I don't think it's by accident at all. I think it's, a, I think it's an attack from the evil one that he wants to erase male and female distinctions. Both are created in the image of God, but not identically created. And so Moses will write in Genesis 2.18, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. As a general principle, it is not God's design for a man or a woman to be single their entire lives. Now, some people God has called to singleness. Paul speaks of that in 1 Corinthians 7. And we should not try to marry off some people that God wants to be single their whole life. They have what he calls an undistracted devotion to the Lord. But for the most part, the general principle is God has called people to be married. And God created for Adam a helper Suitable, a completer. Do you know whose advice and counsel I listen to and value more than anyone else in the face of the earth? It is my helper, completer, my helper, suitable, Audrey McKay Brogy. I value her input more than anyone else because she knows me better than anyone else. She knows all my strengths, all my weaknesses, and God gave her to me, to help me, just like He gave me the Holy Spirit who comes alongside as my helper. God gave me a godly woman to be my helper as well. So God made them male or female. He didn't make people transgender. There's no such thing as a transgender person. There's no such thing as fluidity of the sexes. Now, it's very sad today that Christianity Today, a once great Christian magazine, It began to drift in the late 80s, just very slowly. Now there's more heresy in it than there is truth. It was started by Dr. Billy Graham. It was a great, great magazine historically in its roots. But this particular magazine says in a recent article, if you're not sure what gender you are, then you should wear underwear of the opposite sex. That's just sick. And this once Bible-believing magazine now tells us to follow general journalistic practice. That is, that when you write of a transgender person, you should use the pronoun of that person's choice. So if Peter has become Patty, you should call her Patty, and you should refer to her as she. I was in a pastor's meeting, and if I had not been invited there as a guest, I would have stood up and they would have heard me. But this Christian leader said, listen, if someone comes into your youth group and he wants to be she, then to win her to Jesus, you call he she. Listen, Peter is not going to become Patty. If Peter was born Peter, I'm going to call Peter Peter, not Peter Patty, okay? (laughs) It's a tongue twister. (laughs) Why? Because I want to make them mad at me? No, that's not my goal. But because I love that person. And God's law is a schoolmaster to bring people to Christ. And when you deny that just so you can be friendly with them, what are you going to be friendly until they drop off the earth and spend an eternity in hell without the living God? You deal with people in truth. Truth speaks in a loving way. So we live in a day of faulty thought, Where the roles of men and women in both the church and in the home are being denied. And what do we have? We have more divorce, more suicide, more emotional stress, more homosexuality, more social awkwardness, more child rebellion, more loss of innocence. If you want what the world is offering, do it the world's way, and you'll get exactly that. So oneness and equality is not sameness. God is for oneness, God is not for sameness. He made us equal, but he did not make us to function in the identical way. And so submission does not imply inferiority or inequality. And it is not something that is to be resisted. Put out in the margin next to this verse, 1 Corinthians eleven three. First 1 Corinthians 11 and verse three. Here is a wonderful text of Scripture that reminds us that equality and submission are not contradictory. Paul says, but I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. Now, let's take the last part of that verse, God is the head of Christ. The Father, a reference here, theos, to the Father. The Father is the head of Christ. Now, if you know anything of your biblical theology, you know the Bible affirms the triunity of God, that there are three co-equal, co-eternal persons within the Godhead. And here, two of the members, God the Son and God the Father, are mentioned under the inspiration of God the Spirit. The Bible teaches that God the Father and God the Son are equal in essence and worth and power and stature and majesty and in every way. That's why when uh, Philip, at the end of Christ's uh, three year ministry, he said, You know, Lord, just show us the Father. And Jesus said, Have I been with you so long and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How do you say, Show us the Father? Now, this passage in Corinthians affirms that God the Father and God the Son are equal, and yet the Bible is clear here that God the Father is the head of Christ. Does that mean that the Son is inferior? That's heresy. And, of course, the Bible is crystal clear that while the Father and the Son are equal, they have different roles. And it is equally clear, and it's Paul's point in that 11th chapter, is that while the husband and the wife are equal, God has given them different roles. So, in the marriage relationship, just as the father and the son are equal, the husband and the wife are, but they have different roles. And if you erase those roles, you have a formula for disaster. So, does submission imply inferiority or equality? Absolutely not. Men and women are equal, but they have different roles. Now, that's the initial instruction that he gives. Now, in verse 23, he gives the illustration for the wife, the illustration for for the wife. Look, if you will, at verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. So to help them to understand their role in relationship to their husbands... The apostle Paul now illustrates his point by asking wives to look at the Lord Jesus and by the way he's going to do the same thing in just a moment with husbands. He's going to ask the husband equally to look at the Lord Jesus. For the husband he said is the head of the wife. Now what does the head do? The head gives direction. The head gives the orders the body does not in the physical realm. We in the church do not tell the Lord Jesus Christ what to do. He tells us. What we are to do, and when a physical body does not respond appropriately to its head, it is asthmatic. It is not coordinated. It's crippled. It's parallel. It paralysed. And do you know why so many churches today are sick? Because they are not listening to the head, and everything that the head sound is, everything the head said is written in these sixty six books of the Bible. Now, many marriages today are equally in trouble because the wife is not listening to her head. Now, we're going to come to the husband's. Hold on, ladies. But she's not listening to her head. And some men have abdicated headship. Look, if you have no head, it's dead. It's like a chicken running with its head off. If you have two heads, you have a monster. So God has made the man the head. It does not in any way imply inferiority. Listen, if you have a boss, you had better do what your boss tells you to do this week or you're not going to have a job. It does not mean that you are inferior to your boss. If you're in the Marine Corps, you better do what your officer above you asks you to do or you may find yourself in the brig, it does not mean you are inferior to that officer. If you are a citizen, you better listen to the police officer, or he may arrest you, but it does not mean that the police officer is superior to you. If you are a student, you better do what your teacher asked you to do in terms of the assignments, or you're going to flunk the course. It doesn't mean that you're inferior to the professor. And if you're a wife, You need to submit to your husband, and it does not mean you are inferior to him. So the word head speaks of a leader. The husband is to be the leader. It does not say the husband is to be the dictator. Notice how his headship is further qualified. He himself, like Christ, being the savior of the body. The head of the body of Christ, the church, two words used interchangeably in the New Testament, The head of the body is the Savior of the body. And so, while one dimension of Christ's headship is that He is Lord, it can equally be affirmed that another dimension of His headship is that He is the Savior of the body. And as the Savior, He's the provider, He's the protector. Men, to have headship is to have responsibility. It is to have care over your wife. And when the Bible describes the woman's man as being the head, the emphasis is not simply on his lordship as much as it is on his care and protective uh, watch over your life. Do you know that Jesus Christ has never forced me to do anything? Never once. He didn't force me to get up this morning at 5.30. He didn't force me to prepare all week to share the gospel, to do countless counseling appointments. He didn't force me to give a tithe. But he loved me into doing those things. We love him because he first loved us, and to love Christ is to obey Christ. We're going on being married 39 years. I've never once forced my wife to do anything. But God has called me to love her to do certain things. And that's what God has called us to do. And let me just say parenthetically, most of you know last year was my 40th year in ministry. And I have observed in four decades of ministry that most of the time when you have a woman who's rebellious towards her husband's authority, it's because you have a rebellious husband. But when you have a man Who is sold out to Jesus Christ, willing to follow Him and obey Him no matter what, typically you have a wife that will respect and submit to his authority. So God first instructs wives what they are to do. Then he illustrates how they are to do it, and he concludes now why they are to do it. Notice that the expectation of the wife, the expectation of the wife. He tells us now in verse 24, but as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be subject to their husbands in everything. What a beautiful picture of a loving wife. As or just like the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be subject to their husbands in everything. Just as the husband's headship of his wife is to resemble Christ's headship of the church, even so the wife's submission to her husband is to resemble the church's submission to Christ. I hope you're getting the picture here. He is describing the man and the woman as equal, but not identical. They have different roles. And so consequently, a man finds himself by being a man. And a woman will find herself by being a woman. God has made us different that He might make us one. And God has called the husband to be the head, and for the woman to joyfully and voluntarily submit to his headship in everything. Now, understand when the Bible says in everything, it is qualified by the rest of Scripture because the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. For example, when Paul in Romans 13 tells us to be subject to the governing authorities, it's a qualified subjection because there are times when the apostles would say we must obey God rather than men. Uh, There are times when a woman needs to rebel against her husband's leadership. If he asks you to this month sign a fraudulent tax form, you shouldn't do it. The in everything is within the parameters of being in the Lord. If your husband is medically incapacitated or maybe has gone insane, you're not called to submit to his leadership. If he's physically abusive, he's beating you and the children up. You're not called to submit to him. Yeah, let me get another black eye. If he's breaking his marriage vows, where he's going from one bed to the next, God doesn't call you to submit to that kind of leadership. Now, let me say parenthetically, while we're here, neither does he call you to divorce him. Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 is very plain. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 10. He said, the instruction I'm going to give you is not from me, it's from the Lord. A few verses later, he'll say, the instruction I'm going to give you is not from the Lord, but from me. What does he mean? On the one hand, here's something that Jesus taught. I'm going to tell you what he taught. On the other hand, this is not a subject Jesus ever addressed in his public ministry, but as his apostle, I'm going to tell you on his behalf what he would say. He said, the wife is not to leave her husband. He said, this is what the Lord said. But if she does leave, why would she leave? Maybe because she's being beaten up. Maybe because the physical safety of the kids are endangered. Maybe because he's sleeping around. If she does leave, she is to remain single or be reconciled to her husband. Now, where did Jesus teach that? Paul just said, this is what the Lord said, not me. It's what the Lord said. By what Jesus taught concerning the permanency of marriage. Jesus said, one man, one woman, until death separates it. So when we're talking about submission, and I know sometimes people run with abuse. So oh, he's abusive. Well, oh, he got mad at me. And he said a hurtful word. Well, sometimes we're called to suffer for Christ's sake. 1 Peter 3. But your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, and if he's beating you up, ladies, you need to get protection. Hopefully, ideally, with a view towards reconciliation. That he would come around, maybe find Christ, which is most of the time what is needed, be saved, transformed, where your marriage could be healed. And let me just say too, men, while we're talking about your leadership, there may be things because you know your wife is far better and more astute at it than you are, that you delegate a responsibility to her. I know some women in this church, they manage the home finances, they do all the taxes, and they're just really sharp at it. But if she messes up, you can't get mad at her. Because you're the head, it is ultimately your leadership, your responsibility. And again, I am convinced that the primary problem today in the American family is not rebellious wives as much as it is as wimpy husbands, men who do not lead spiritually and who have become feminized. And so we live in a day, we used to live in a day of hardworking men and pretty women. Now we live in a day of pretty men and hardworking women. We've reversed the roles. We just have shaker, shirker, quitter husbands who need to have their minds renewed from Scripture. Now, when we come down to verse 33, he will say, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. In other words, when you submit to your husband's authority, you are respecting your husband's authority. So, the faithful submission and respect of the wife, that's the first principle. Now, he addresses us. He deals with the sacrificial love and nurture of the husband. The sacrificial love and nurture of the husband. And once again, he follows the same pattern. Instruction, illustration, and then an application. First, the instruction to the husband. He commands, husbands, love your wives. If the wife's love is primarily revealed in her respectful submission to her head, the husband's love is revealed in his sacrificial love of his wife. That's a command. It's an imperative. That's radical. Because for the most part in our day, we have relegated love to the, uh, to the arena of the emotions only. But it's more than emotional. Emotional more than a feeling. If it can be commanded, it's willful. Now, there are four different Greek words that are used in the first century that are translated love. There's the Greek word eros. It's not found in the New Testament. It is a word that refers to desire, sexual love. God's not against it. God speaks of sexual love in the Bible. He thought it up. He put the plumbing in. He knows how it is to function between a man and a woman within a marriage relationship. The second word that is used that is found in the New Testament is the word storge. Storge is the word translated love that is used to refer to family love. The love between family members, it's linked by blood, so to speak. And the Bible tells us at the end of time, in the last days, there'll be a lack of storge, of family love. The third word, also found in the New Testament, is the word phileo, and it's the word that speaks of natural affection. It is used of the affection, the friendship kind of love that maybe two sisters have or two brothers in the Lord. It's even used outside in the New Testament of a love that a, that a master has for his for his dog, so to speak. The fourth word, also found in the New Testament, is the word agapao. We tend to anglicize it. We say agape love or technically agape love, but agapao is the verb, and it is the word that is used to describe love in the realm of the will. And it is used in two ways. It's used negatively and positively. Sometimes you'll hear a Christian say, well, agape love is God's love. Not necessarily. It just refers to willful love. For instance, God says that there are some people who agapao, they love their evil deeds, and so they don't come to the light. They so willfully choose sin and darkness over the light, they don't come to Christ. But it is also used of the unconditional love of God for us in Christ. For God so loved, there it is, agapao, agapao. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. And so God commands this kind of love, and the Shema... Recited every Sabbath day across the world by Jewish people. Shema is the Hebrew word most of you know for here. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. For God to be able to command that, and the second is like it, you love your neighbor like yourself, then it's more than just emotional. For God to command you to love even your enemies. Then it is a willful kind of love. And that is the word the Spirit of God gives to men when He says, men, love your wives. Now in addition to the instruction, then there's the illustration for the husband. There's the instruction and then He gives an illustration. Look, if you will, now at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, this verse speaks really of the measure of a man's love for his wife. It is to be as Christ loved the church. How did the Lord Jesus love us? He loved us sacrificially. What were we doing when the Lord Jesus died for him, died for us? So I know we were not born, but in time and space, we were rebelling against God because the Bible says there is none who seeks God, no, not one. Hold your finger here and turn back a few books to the book of Romans chapter 5. This is important. Go to Romans chapter 5 for just a moment. It's important that you understand the love of God in Christ because if you have a distorted view of God's love for you in Christ, then you will express a distorted view towards one another, especially men who are called to sacrifice uh, their selves in loving their wives. Now, here in Romans 5... God reminds us that He loves us, first and foremost, through the death of His Son. So it's here on the screen. Three times over in the passage, the course of a few verses, it tells us that Christ died for us. Verse 6, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 8, while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. And then he adds in verse 10, we were reconciled to God, how? Through the death of His Son. So, Paul is reminding us how different God's love is from our love. Our love tends to be self seeking, it tends to be something that we want to enrich our life with. But God's love is never self seeking, it is always other oriented. Our love tends to go after people who are lovable or admirable or desirable, but not God's love. In fact, what a contrast. There are some adjectives you may want to circle here uh, in these verses. Look at verse 6. For while we're still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. The first word that describes us is helpless. If you do not see yourself this morning as helpless, you will never become a Christian and you will never go to heaven. There must be a point in your life where you see yourself in God's economy as spiritually bankrupt, that you can do nothing to contribute to salvation, that Christ did it all, that you're helpless. The second word to underline or circle is the word ungodly. And this adjective speaks of how unlike God we are. That we are not godly by nature, but we are rebellious by nature. We're described here as ungodly because instead of loving God with all of our being, we've rebelled against God. We are ungodly. Then in verse 7, he illustrates before he gives us another adjective. And he wants to remind us that this love that God has towards the helpless and ungodly is not caused. Or found in us, it's totally found in God. This is an important illustration. Don't miss it. Verse 7, for one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare to die. The first word righteous is the word dikaiou. It is a word that describes to someone who's cold, detached, and unattractive. A person who is morally upright, but out of a sense of duty and obligation, not out of warmth and kindness and a passionate love for God. You probably wouldn't die for that kind of cold, upright person, though perhaps for the agathos man, for the good man, someone would dare even to die. This word agathos, agathu, refers to someone who's warm and generous The kind of spirit sometimes a mother will have towards their children or a dad or a mother will will, will have towards their grandchildren. It's just a a passionate, warm, friendly kind of love. And for that kind of person, you would sacrifice your life for. But look at verse 8. Here's the contrast. It's one of the strongest adversities in the New Testament. But... But God demonstrates His own kind of love. God's love that is different from your love and my love. His own kind of love. God demonstrates His own love towards us in that while we're yet sinners, there's the third word, circle it. While we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. The adjective homotolos, used here in verse eight, describes a person who is a sinner. There's a noun. Sin, there's a verb, to sin, but in whatever reflective form they are found, it means to fall short, to miss the mark. It's used outside of the Bible in both Hebrew and in Greek of someone aiming at a target and missing the bullseye, so to speak. And when compared to the glory of God, Jesus Christ, we have missed the target. Morally, we have departed from the path that God has called us to walk on. Now notice the fourth word in verse 10. For if while we were enemies... Finally, God calls us enemies. Why? Because there's hostility between God and man. What a description of man and sin. We're helpless in that we could not save ourselves. We're ungodly in that we were rebels. And unlike the living God, we're sinners in that we're failures who missed the mark of God's righteousness. And we're enemies because we are at war with God. But for such people, Jesus Christ died. You see, the degree of a person's love is measured typically in two realms. One, by the cost of the gift, and secondly, by the unworthiness of the recipient. This gift, God's Son, cost him everything, and it was given to people who were totally unworthy, worthy only of His just wrath. So Christ did not die, Paul's point, for the cold and upright. He did not die for the good and attractive person. He died for unattractive, unworthy, undeserving sinners like us. And that's the kind of sacrificial love a man is to show towards his wife. And so if you have a distorted view of the cross, you will have a distorted application of loving her. Unconditional love. Back here in Ephesians. Ephesians 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just like just as. Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's 100% responsibility. Don't tell me about your wife's problems. Don't tell me about how hard she is to love. Your wife may be a big sinner, but so are you. I mean, what if God says to you one day, well, tell me how you loved your wife. Well, God, I loved her in certain areas, but it was really hard to love her. She was stubborn. She was lazy. She was untrustworthy. I just couldn't love her. This is not a suggestion. This is a command. It does not come out of the realm of the emotions. It does not come out of the realm of friendship even. It comes out of the realm of the will. We are to love our wives as God loved his enemies. Notice the aim of the Messiah's love in verses 26 and 27. Why did he do this? So that, here's the reason, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word that he might present to himself the church in all of her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. God gives us here in these verses five verbs to describe the unfolding love process that God has for his church, his bride. Five verbs that take us from eternity past into eternity future. You might want to circle them in your Bible. The first one is found in verse 25. He loved the church... That verb goes into eternity past. We sing it. He loved me ere I knew him. Before I ever knew the Lord, he loved me. He wrote my name down in the Lamb's book of life before he even created the world. Now, that does not speak of the extent of the atonement, something that John Calvin's followers say are limited, only to the elect. Calvin didn't teach that. Calvin taught that all that Christ died for all. The Bible is clear that Christ died for all, but while it speaks of the extent of the atonement for all men, the intent of the atonement is especially for those who would respond, for those who would believe, and in that sense, he laid down his life for his sheep. He loved the church when we are rebels. He loved us. He set his affection upon us such that, look at the second verb, he gave himself up for her. That speaks of the cross. Love is not something, again, that is passive. It is active. He actively loved us, and so we are to actively love our wives. And if you think that being some big dictator in your home is how you love your wife, you've totally missed it. You love her, among other things, as serving her. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. He expressed the ultimate servanthood in giving Himself for us. Your wife is not just your slave. She's not your slave at all. You are to serve her. You are to love her. And what was the purpose of this sacrifice of the giving himself on the cross? Look at the third and fourth verbs in verse 26. So that he might sanctify her. Circle the word sanctify. Having cleansed her. He cleanser, her. That refers to, notice, a past tense to our position in Jesus Christ. When God saves you, he puts you in Christ. He imputes the righteousness of the Lord Jesus. He makes him who, knows, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become God's righteousness in Christ. He has given you a new position. And how did he accomplish that? Notice, by the washing of the water with the word. Washing does not refer to baptism as some of the reformers thought, that it was somehow infant baptism, as Calvin and Luther taught, as a means of prevenient grace. Nothing could be further from the truth. Baptism is always done in the Bible after a person believes in the Lord Jesus. But in Ezekiel chapter 36, Titus 3, 5, it speaks of the washing of rebirth. The Lord Jesus spoke of living water, referring to the work of the Holy Spirit. There are two parents in your being born again, just as there are two parents in your being born physically. You're born again of the Spirit, you're born again of the Word. The Spirit of God took the Word of God because faith comes from hearing and hearing by the Word of God, and he brought about a new creation in Christ. So having cleansed her, that's the past tense, why? That he might sanctify her. That's the present tense. In other words, he has declared you righteous in his sight, but now in this process of present sanctification, he wants you to become righteous in your experience. And so the husband is to do everything. This is part of your leadership to grow your wife up in Christ. And sometimes it is as simple as saying to your wife, here, I'll take the kids. Go off to Starbucks for an extended quiet time today so that you can study the Word of God alone. There are so many ways in which you do it. But listen, it involves you leading her, learning together the Word of God. And of course, it would automatically imply that you would never have her drink something that God would not have her drink that you would never have her watch something that the Lord Jesus would not sit there and watch with you because you're so deeply committed to her practice in becoming more like the Lord Jesus? Listen, when this church called me to be the pastor nearly 30 years ago, I promised the elders that I would serve this church faithfully, and if God so willed it, until I died. But I also reminded them that my family, my wife first, my children second, were a higher priority to me than this ministry. Why? Because ministry is endless. Some weeks I worked 60, 70 hours, but I could have worked 100. It's endless. The demands are forever. And I reminded them, I said, listen... I may kill over someday, and you'll find another pastor. And you can easily find another pastor. And a year later, you so say, what was that guy's name? But I only have one wife, and she is my priority. Men, your highest priority next to your relationship with the Lord is your wife. And some of you, man, you're out with the guys all the time. And I'm not saying there's not a place for that. But your wife is getting the leftovers instead of the priority time that he might present to himself. Now he's looking into the future, verse 27, that he might present to himself the church in all of her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. This speaks of Jesus coming back for his bride. It speaks of an unfailing commitment that when he saved us, he secured us, and he will never divorce us. And so we are to love our wives, having given the instruction to the husband, the illustration for the husband. Now he gives the expectation of the husband the expectation of the husband. Notice, if you will now, verse 28. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. It seems rather anticlimactical, does it not? He goes from this high and lofty standard of Christ loving us through the cross this rather seemingly low standard of self-love, but it's not a low standard if you understand it contextually. He's putting into shoe leather the golden rule. For he says in verse 29, for no one ever hated his own flesh. Contrary to popular Christian psychobabble, unless a person is mentally ill, we do not need to be taught to love ourselves. For no one, ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. All of us, we, we look out for our own skin. And so husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. And then he takes this truth all the way back to Genesis. Here's the, here's the where, it, where it comes from. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. One flesh in the Bible is not simply an expression of two bodies coming together, but two personalities. Which is why Jesus said, Consequently, they are no longer two but one. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. He warns against divorce. God says, I, the God of Israel, hate divorce. Why? Because it's like tearing apart two living people who God has joined And so here's the point for us men who are married. We are to nourish, we are to cherish our wives as we would our own bodies. Just as we protect our own bodies and feed our bodies and bathe our bodies and keep our bodies from harm and pain, so we are to protect our wives. Because you see, you are no longer two. But you are one, and a man who does not protect and care for his own body is mentally sick, and a man who does not care and protect his wife, he is maritally sick. He's committing potential marital suicide. We are to love our wives as our own bodies, and by the way, it is not by accident. That God gives the responsibility of nourishing and cherishing to the husband and not to the wife. Why? Because, as Peter reminds us, the wife is a weaker vessel, not mentally, emotionally, but physically. God made us different for a reason, and so the man is called to be the protector. And notice how he fuses these two truths together in verses 29 and 30. For no one again ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body, just as Christ and the body of Christ are inseparable. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He never laid a finger on Jesus, but when he laid a finger on Jesus' followers, he was laying a finger on Christ. The body of Christ and Christ are inseparable. Even so, you are no longer two distinct persons, but you have been made one. And so to harm yourself is to harm your wife. To love your wife is to love yourself. It's a marvelous truth. Verse 32, this mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Why is submission and sacrificial love, why is faithfulness to this design that God made for marriage so important? Because it is a picture of the relationship that Jesus Christ has with his people. And your marriage today either pictures Christ's love or it denies it. So he concludes, nevertheless, Each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself. That speaks of unity. And the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. That speaks of his headship. If Paul could boil down his whole message in this long paragraph, it would come down to two principles. And he capsulizes them together here in verse 33. Don't miss it. Husbands, you need to understand that the principle that governs your relationship with your wife is that there is now a unity. You are a union with her. You are one with her. And women, the principle that governs your relationship to your husband is that that unity has a head and that head is your man. Now wives tend to be quick to embrace and understand the husband's principle that you and your wife are a unity. And she wants that typically to be the governing principle in the relationship. Likewise, men, they tend to embrace the wife's principle, their unity has a head, and they want that to be the governing relationship in the marriage. But let each of our own principles govern ourselves. And when a husband begins to think, look, I am one with my wife. And the way I treat my wife I treat myself, so I must love her sacrificially. And really, in loving her sacrificially, I am, God says, even loving myself. And the wife must think, the husband is, my husband is the head of our oneness. And so I need to respect and to submit to his headship. And when a husband and a wife do those two things, they will have a growing, healthy marriage. How are we going to apply this? Let me suggest three quickly in closing. Number one, the highest human relationship on earth is the husband-wife relationship. This passage teaches me that the highest human relationship on earth is the husband-wife relationship. It's not the parent-child relationship. That's what a lot of couples think, and they build their whole home around the kids, and then all of a sudden the kids are gone, you got two people staring at each other that don't know each other. Listen, if you really want to love your children, then prioritize your own relationship. I've been dating my wife for almost 39 years, and unless I'm out of the country, we usually have a date every week, and she still makes me ask her. You want to build security into the heart of your children? Build that relationship. Plan together. Dream together. And God will use that to build more security and emotional stability and a love for Christ in the hearts of your kids than anything else. Second, I'm reminded from the broader context that success in marriage is impossible apart from being filled with the Spirit. It is impossible. Verse 18, that really begins this whole section, he has said earlier, he said, don't walk as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time. Do not be drunk with wine, but he says, be filled with the Spirit. And so all the way through this text, he's really describing what a Spirit-filled individual looks like. Now, if you don't know what it means to be filled with the Spirit, either A, go to the Discover class, or if you're live streaming, download the Search the Scriptures app and go to searchthescriptures.org and listen to my message on the Spirit-filled life. It will be a big help to you. Listen, when you are filled with the Spirit, as a man, you'll be able to love her sacrificially. As a woman, you will be able to submit to his leadership. The Holy Spirit is your helper. You cannot even begin to pull this off unless he is filling your life. Third, let me just give a word of encouragement to those who have failed. This is marriage God's way, and every time I open up a text of Scripture like this, some people hang their head low and they say, I wish I knew this. What a failure I am. Maybe you are, but there's forgiveness, there's cleansing, and today can be the first day of the rest of your life. But let me tell you, if you've never been born again, if you've never been saved, that's the most critical decision that you must make, not just for this life, but for eternity. Because you can't be filled with the Spirit unless you're indwelt by the Spirit, and you cannot become a temple of the Holy Spirit until you've trusted Jesus as Lord and Savior. Otherwise, it's trying to do it in your own strength, and it is impossible. Christ did not come just to teach you how to live. Christ came to die for you in your place, taking your judgment. And if you want to be saved, you can, but you must change your mind about sin. The Bible calls that repentance. You must change your mind about sin. If you don't see it as evil, you don't need a Savior See, there are so many self-righteous men in Christ who were so morally upright, but inwardly they were dead men's bones. They didn't really see themselves as helpless. They needed to change their mind and believe what God said about them. And some of you here, you've lived lives of unfaithfulness. You, you, you smoke pot. You drink booze. You cheat. You lie. You steal. And you think everything's fine. And unless you repent, you perish. You must bring your sin to God Almighty as something that needs to be wrong and forgiven through the death and resurrection of God's Son. Now, our Father, thank you today for the chance to pause on this Lord's Day. You've told us in the first day of every week we're to gather. And thank you that we're able to do that this morning some in different locations, but we're here to worship You through Your Word and for You to renew our minds with the truth of Scripture. I pray today, Father, for someone who is here who is unsure of their salvation. Thank You that Christ's death was not partial but total, total for all of our judgment, that if we will come to Him as sinners in need of forgiveness and change, That by his death and resurrection, you will forgive and change today. Begin that process in someone's life. Father, some have crossed that line, but they've just remained babes in Christ. And they have spent more time studying the culture on Facebook and all the social medias than they do in a given week studying your word. And they wonder why they are so weak and inconsistent. Help them today, Father, to line up their priorities, to begin to feed on the pure, unadulterated word of truth that they might grow in respect to their salvation. Help us to encourage one another and stimulate one another to love and good deeds as a body of believers in this church. We ask it all in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand? we'll sing a hymn of invitation. And if you're here and you have a decision to make, you say, what kind of decision? Well, if you've never openly, without shame, confessed Jesus as your Lord, that's a first step. God asks asks that of every believer. And ultimately, it expresses itself in believers' baptism. Baptism is done after salvation as an emblem of death, burial, and resurrection. If you've never done that, I wanna encourage you today to come. Maybe you're here, you're a Christian, you need a church home, and you feel like this is a place where you can grow and lead your family, then you come as well. Matt's going to lead us. If you have a decision, step out right now.